The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to The Way BK podcast. I'm Ben, and I'm here with Caleb, and we're going to be looking at the church at Antioch today, which you find for the most part in Acts chapters 11, 13, and 15. It's a really amazing church with a really amazing story and a lot of great lessons for us about how church should be. Um, we all know this is not an uncommon thing or surprising thing. If you're listening to this, surely you've had experiences in churches where either you knew for sure something was wrong or you just kind of looked around and it felt like something was wrong. Um, we know about a lot of churches talk about we have problems internally or we're struggling to influence our community and being a light like Jesus wants us to. And there's a lot of different solutions that people come up with. And frankly, a lot of them are worldly solutions about how to be church as Jesus would want us to be. So uh, churches like Antioch, we've seen other churches in the book of Acts that help us with this. But Antioch is a really exemplary church. Um, surely they had problems in terms of like sins, I'm sure at some point. But those aren't really identified in Acts. And that's not to make us think, oh, they were a perfect place. They didn't have any problems. But it is just meant to highlight the good things about them. So uh, we're going to look at that today. So grab a Bible. We're going to, again, be in Acts chapter 11 primarily. And we're going to maybe do some excursions to some other places. Um, and, you know, be taking notes. Be thinking about what lessons you learn. And we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on thewaybk.com or on our Facebook page, The Way BK. And uh, let us know what other lessons you learned in addition to the things we're going to talk about today. Or if you have questions, so be thinking about that as we study. There may be questions you have about church and how church should be and what lessons we should learn. All right, so that's enough setup stuff. Um, Caleb, talk to us about how the church in Antioch came to be and some of the stuff that made it special. So the church in Antioch uh, is planted when people are driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution that comes, um, led by Saul of Tarsus. And so the many of the Jews are attacking Christians in Jerusalem, and it leads to a great scattering. Back in chapter 8, we learned that um, that basically everybody outside of the apostles flees Jerusalem. And in chapter 11 and verse 19, we find out that these people were scattered because of the persecution. Everywhere they went, they went preaching. Um, and they're taking the gospel uh, everywhere, everywhere they can go. So they, some of them made their way up to Phoenicia and Cyprus, the island off of... Uh, off the coast of Israel and the Mediterranean, and then to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. After all, most of these missionaries that are out preaching are Jewish, and um, a lot of them wouldn't have known yet about the, what went on with Peter and Cornelius. Um, they wouldn't have known a lot about God's call for uh, the Gentiles to be become children of God. So as they're going out, they're preaching primarily to the people who they're most comfortable with. Um, interestingly, though, in verse 20, we find out that actually in Antioch, some of these people, some of these men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks also, uh, preaching the Lord Jesus. So Antioch is the first place that we find out uh, where the gospel is really being preached to everyone, Jew. Greek, um, the gospel is being spread, um, spread to anyone who will listen to it. 
which leads to what becomes the first, in, at least in the story of the book of Acts, the first uh, multicultural church. This is the first church that we know of that was made up of large numbers of Jews and also large numbers of Greeks or Gentiles, um, people from the nations, uh, which, which, mean, which leads to an interesting dynamic here in the group. Yeah, which manifests in both, uh, it's not negative, I was about to say positive or negative, I don't know what the right word, but in chapter 13, one way this manifests is you've got this list of people, and since this is kind of like a, hey, we're all in this together, you've got five people identified as being teachers, mm-hmm. and from different cultural backgrounds, but even just the fact of, hey, we've got five different guys, that's kind of different. And a lot of churches, the idea of having a multiplicity of influencers or leaders or teachers, as chapter 13 says, that's pretty radical. And of course, having a multicultural, um, inclusive kind of um, social group mm-hmm. in a church, that's different. And then, uh, so I mean, I think that's the cool thing and a good lesson that there should churches should have an openness about those who are different and an openness in leadership and an openness in uh, uh, just in their churches in general. Uh, that if someone comes to believe in the Lord Jesus, you're in. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your cultural background. We're different. We're going to figure out how to work it out because we believe the same thing. Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, in fact, I, I, I believe one of the reasons why many churches do not grow um, is because we do, sometimes unintentionally, but sometimes even intentionally, discriminate with the gospel. Um, you know, you still see a lot of churches that are segregated, whether it's by race, by class. Um, you'll see churches where certain people are not welcome because of the way that they dress, um, maybe because of their background, maybe because of their history, uh, maybe because of the way they appear. Um, their age. Their age, yeah. yeah. Um, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which we uh, kind of shoot ourselves in the foot as, as churches. Um, and one of the reasons why this church is so healthy is because they have an open, they're opening the word to everyone. Um, and, and that's important because, you know, sometimes for whatever reason, certain, uh, certain people may not be willing to listen. We're going to see other places in the book of Acts where Paul goes to certain places and he tries to go to the Jews and they don't want any part of it. But then he goes to the, to the nations and they're very uh, accepting of it. And and so the point being, like, you, you never know who's going to be open to the gospel. Oftentimes the people that I'm, I'm most sure, like, these are the people who are going to come to the Lord, don't end up coming mm-hmm. to the Lord. And oftentimes it's the people that I say, there's no way that guy's coming to the Lord. And those are the ones who do. Um, so if we're going to grow a healthy church, it's, it starts by being inclusive in that everyone is invited to come and know the Lord Jesus. I'll just point out another thing um, related to what you said here um, is because of the diversity within the group, the church uh, has a diverse group of leaders. And and that's another thing that leads to a healthy um, foundation for, for a church to grow. Um, you know, I think one of the, one of the reasons why a lot of churches struggle uh, to grow is because there's entirely too much dependence on one, two, three people and not enough of uh, leadership development and training where there's there's a large number of people who are taking on leadership roles and helping that group to grow. Um, you saw in Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders there, I mean, they have a large number of leaders in the church. Now here again in Antioch, I mean, this church is newly established in chapter 13, verses 
uh, verse 1, but we find out that there's already Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, um, along with John Mark from the end of chapter 12. All these guys are there uh, teaching and leading. And uh, I do think that a lot of churches um, struggle because we put too much uh, dependence on any one person. Like if one person's doing all the preaching or all the shepherding, uh, you know, how effective is that person? The church is going to be strong where that leader is strong, but also weak where that leader is weak. Um, the more diverse the group of leaders, the more you're going to have a, a healthy environment for people to, to benefit from each person's strengths while also not being overly influenced by each person's weaknesses. Sure. Um, yeah, and I'll add, I mean, I think you're, yeah, that's a really good point. I think another thing that helps with... Uh, the notion of a multiplicity of leadership and even having a, a, an open door kind of thing where it's not just we need people to look a certain way, sound a certain way, fit a certain mold or whatever, is it makes sure that we understand our dependence is on the Lord and not on any one leader or even one type of leader. That's right. You know, I think, I th- and I'm not really sure if I'm going to say this right, so you're going to have to help me kind of fix this and I'm try to find what I'm trying to say here. I think the world's idea about diversity and leadership is, oh, like, you know, we need pieces from every culture in order to, or every background or every economic class or every age group. We need somebody from each one so that we can kind of have this composite strength that we take from every single group, subgroup or whatever. I don't think that's really a part of the New Testament model for strong leadership. Like our leadership is in the spirit of God. It's in the headship of Christ. And so for us, it's not so much like, oh, I want to take something from black culture, white culture, Caribbean culture, Asian, like uh, Indian culture, Chinese culture, um, you know, Colombian culture. And and I want to make this composite group of all these different things and then we'll be strong. Well, that's actually just like a more global way of relying on human strength at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. It seems to me the value of this diversity of leadership is it makes sure that nobody thinks, oh, um, this type of intelligence level is necessary to be a leader. When you have somebody who's really intelligent uh, or, or educated, I guess I should say, people are intelligent in different ways, but somebody who's really educated and somebody who's not educated and they're both shepherding a group or influencing a group or whatever, then it helps us know, oh, actually education level has nothing to do with the gospel. you know. Or you have someone who's really rich and someone who's really poor influencing the church. Well, they're both godly men. Oh, so I guess economics isn't really that big of a deal. Or we've got a black guy and a white guy and a Hispanic guy and an Asian guy. Oh, I guess ethnicity isn't that big of a deal when it comes to being the people of God. There's something bigger and higher. And I think that's one of the values of having, a, a, as we're saying, a diversity in the church, but especially among leaders, is it helps people see none of us, no people group, no subset, no demographic, no individual is good enough. And really, all of us together aren't good enough. It's the Lord who's good enough yeah. to lead us in the way we need to go. Color, class, age, that's not really at the heart of what it, what matters. That's not what shapes our identity. Our identity is shaped on the Lord, right. which is actually right there in the founding of this church, right? Um, when they came, look at the emphasis in chapter 11 on... Uh, on this um, that that Luke gives in 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 Acts chapter eleven verse twenty, they began speaking to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse twenty one. 
the hand of the Lord was with them. A large number of believed turned to the Lord. Um, verse, skip down to verse uh, 23. Barnabas comes in and, uh, and, and, and when he sees the grace of God, he rejoices and encourages them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And then verse 24, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. The emphasis is entirely on the way you get a healthy church is every person from every culture, from every tribe, and from every tongue fixes their eyes on the Lord, turns to the Lord, commits themselves to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And in so doing, then we're all growing up into him and we're all we're all leaving behind some of the fleshly divisive things that that uh that may that may that may divide us, sure. and we're we're allowing ourselves to become more and more like him. What ends up happening a lot of times is uh, in churches is that rather than pointing people to the Lord, we end up pointing people to the group mm-hmm. um, or or the church, and and that's a problem. Uh, it's not just a problem today; it's a problem then. We're going to see in Acts 15 that that's that's actually what happens: is you get some Jewish uh, disciples who come down from what seems like Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Church. We find out they didn't have the authority from the Jerusalem <laughs> Church, but they were acting like they did. They come in, and they start saying, "Hey, unless you're circumcised and follow the law of Moses, uh, you can't be saved." Which is kind of code language for coded language for the fact that unless you become a Jew, you can't be saved. Like right. unless unless you become part of our group, we're not going to have a diverse group here. You, we're all going to become like this, and that's going to be the way uh, that the way this church has unity. And and even more fundamentally than that, if you want to be saved from your sins, join the group. Right. This group has some kind of saving power. This group has some sort of saving influence. And to your point, like that's how we're, that we're going to be. The group is going to be united by itself, right. which is kind of the dumbest version of circular reasoning you could have about a group of people. Um, but on an even more fundamental level, it's join the group, and therefore you'll be saved, which you kind of alluded a second ago. That's really how a lot of people think and speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to be saved? You need to join the church. You know, mm-hmm. you need to be coming to church. And like, look, we've said before, we've, and we're actually say some things about this in a minute, we really believe strongly the value and the necessity of strong fellowship and bonds between brethren and closeness in the church. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be a part of a, a godly right. church. But churches don't save you. And that's to your right. point, I mean, this it's just kind of, it seems like overkill, except maybe that's part of the point. Luke wants us to really see the thing that made this church good is they were really devoted to the ideology of the, the good news right. of Jesus the Lord. Not the good news of the Christian movement, not the good news of a new moral code under Jesus' direction, not the good news of the church. It was the good news about Jesus, and that's the thing that everybody needs to believe if they're going to be saved. Well, exactly. It's not it's not the church of Jesus Christ that saves. It's Jesus the Christ who right, does right, the right. saving. And, and you see that all throughout the Bible. Um, even the great leaders of ancient Israel, you know, Moses and David, um, were, were, were flawed. Were, were sinful. I mean, had 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 huge uh, flaws in their character. Even the most faithful Israelites were not fully faithful. And because of that, that's why God sent the Christ. That's why God sent Jesus, because only Jesus was the true Israel, the, the faithful Israelite who did exactly what God wanted, which made him righteous and able to suffer 
uh, as a sacrifice for our sins. So, so the only way a person is going to get their sins removed is by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by, um, by being washed uh, in his blood. If that's the case, then we ought to be holding, we ought to be pointing people to him and not to us uh, and pointing and holding on to him and not to any sort of group or any sort of tribe. Uh, If you point people to the church or to the group rather than than Jesus, they may end up following the church rather than Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is not always a good thing, right? Right. Um, Because churches evolve and sometimes they evolve for uh, for the better, they grow up into Christ. That's the way it ought to be. But we also find out that many of the churches that are strong in the book of Acts, by the time you read the end, the, the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, some of these churches like Ephesus, who becomes such a light for good in the book of Acts, has, has decayed, has yeah. deteriorated, and Jesus is threatening to take away their lampstand. If you commit people to a church... Uh, and you point them to a church, they'll stay faithful to the church even when the church leaves the Lord. Um, but if you commit them to the Lord, then even when the church drifts, they're going to be pulling the church back or they're going to leave with the Lord and be faithful to the Lord. And that's actually, I think, how you develop a healthy church is is not by pointing people to this great leader or this group of leaders. It's by pointing people to Christ and the leaders are continually pointing people back to Christ and, 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 and bringing the church to him. Yeah. So on a practical level, personally, if I'm thinking about, okay, like what this is teaching is I don't need to be committed to church. I need to be committed to Christ. And and my, my commitment to a church needs to be a function of my commitment to Christ. Like it needs to happen, but it needs to be. Um, I'm trying to think of how to make that practical in terms of how to examine, am I committed to church or am I committed to Christ? Because the problem is, and why people slip into this problem that you're bringing out, is the lines kind of blur. Because mm-hmm. all people ever talk about in church is Christ, you mm-hmm. know. Even if it's wrong or flawed, you're still talking about it. So it's kind of hard to tell. You may have another idea on this, but one thing I think that helps on a practical level is when I'm asking questions of myself about what's right or wrong or what I should or shouldn't do or what I should or shouldn't believe, do I ask, what does the church say about this or what does the church think? Or do I ask, what does Christ teach on this as revealed in Scripture? Amen. I think that's one practical way to think about it. And, of course, it's very common. People, uh, I think both of us, people ask, well, what does your church believe about blah, blah, blah? Well, A, that kind of is an impossible question to ask because it makes the church into like this institution that's set up all these rules and regulations, and then people kind of adhere to that, when the reality is a church is an organic thing that grows up of people who are committed to Christ. So it's kind of a misconception of church anyways. But... Even if that existed, if there was some sort of standardized, here's the church's beliefs. And I know there are some churches that are not churches that belong to Christ, but there are churches that operate that way. But even if a church operates that way, that question doesn't matter because the church didn't die for me. The church isn't going to raise me from the dead on the last day. The church can't forgive me when I'm messing up. Like, the church can't do that. The question is not what does your church believe or what is your church's stance on fill-in-the-blank issue. But the question I need to ask is what does... Christ say? What does Christ want? What does Christ think about whatever the issue is? That's one, I think, one practical way we can kind of take this concept of we need to have our allegiance to Christ and uh, and keep that at the forefront of our minds. But there may be some other things practically <coughs> to make sure that we have this ideology that we're believing in, trusting in, faithful to, loyal to Christ. 
above all else. Yeah, and which means that practically uh, when, when issues arise or when questions arise, I'm going to turn back to the Bible. I'm going to turn back to the scriptures. I'm going to look at what does Jesus say about this. And I'm going to let that be what guides me and what lead what lead. And I'll say this is this is special this is this is the only way to have a healthy church in any place. Um, but I you know getting to getting to live in New York City and getting to experience church here is kind of cool cuz you do get an Antioch type population. There's people from all the nations here. And uh, and one of the biggest things I learned when I came to New York was uh, that the only way we're ever going to have unity in churches is, is if we do this. Like because we're so different in every other way. Like we, everything about our backgrounds, our culture is so different. The only way we can have unity is if all of us say, you know what, I'm gonna let go of my culture. I'm gonna let go of what everything about my past. I'm gonna look at the scriptures and I'm gonna look and say, what does Jesus say? That I need to be. That I need to be. What does Jesus say that I need to do? What does Jesus say that we need to be united in? And let that be what uh, what holds us together. Um, and anytime, anytime we lose sight of that, we we get unbalanced in that, and we we drift away from Him as as our head. We we may get ourselves into trouble. Maybe yeah. lead us down the wrong path. So I mean, we've talked about two major. Uh, I guess, lessons or themes from the Church of Antioch. One being this, just kind of an interesting thing, which is this multiculturalism, which is beautiful and good, um, but really that's grounded in this belief, a shared belief in the Lord Jesus and this proclamation of the Lord Jesus. Um, what do you see about how they cultivated uh, this faith, this shared faithfulness uh, to Christ? What is it that, uh, that helped cultivate that within the church? Well, one thing is, as soon as the as soon as all these people start turning to the Lord, they send for help, um, and they send for help um, to places that they knew people they knew who could come and strengthen them. So they send for Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas, remember his name is Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because he was an encourager. Uh, he's a son of encouragement, and so Barnabas comes up to Antioch and. And, of course, he sees what's going on, and he's just uh, rejoicing. He's so excited about um, the grace of God that is uh, being poured out in Antioch. So so Barnabas begins to encourage them, um, and uh, he's encouraging them to, to remain true to the Lord. But when he gets there and he recognizes the scope of the, the work that's going on, he sends for more help. He leaves mm-hmm. and goes to get more help um, to come back. Uh, but I, I just want to... <clears throat> I just want to point out that really um, another thing that I think causes a lot of churches to struggle or to gr- or to or to have a hard time growing is sometimes people think that when that really the goal is just to get people to turn to the Lord and then like and now they're in like they're, now we're the church like so everybody's there and we're good. Um, one of the things you see about Antioch, one of the reasons why it's so healthy is. They recognized that the work of evangelism did not stop when people were baptized into Christ. That, mm-hmm. It was just beginning. Right, um, right. And so so much of developing a healthy group, a healthy, healthy assembly of disciples, um, is rooted in um, people who are willing to become encouragers. Mm-hmm. People who are going to keep pointing people back to the Lord, speaking the truth in love to them. Um, being advocates, uh, and it's not just about uh, that's not just the role of uh, like the preachers or the pastors. That's that ought to be the role of every Christian, sure. um, every mature Christian ought to be looking to encourage and to build up uh, our brothers and sisters. 
And I mean, I, you know, practically there's a lot of ways to, to think about that. One is obviously devoting ourselves to prayer with one another and for one another. We're going to see in Acts 13, the church was coming together to pray, mm-hmm. like for that purpose. Um, but uh, another big part of that that I think is hard for us is um, just being willing to develop relationships with people that are rooted in truth and love. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, I've been guilty of this. I think this is a struggle sometimes. A lot of times we want relationships, but we want like affirming relationships that will just affirm us and, you know, people who would just tell us what we want to hear and people who would just accept us as we are. Um, that's not the picture uh, that is given for uh, the kind of work that Barnabas is doing. It's not the... The work is not just saying uh, affirm uh, affirmation. It is more than that. It's it's a willingness to say what needs to be said, um, a willingness to love in ways that are hard, a willingness not just to uh, to affirm one another, but actually to provoke one another to love and good works, to be able to correct and to and to admonish um, when in need. And um, and a church is only going to be as healthy as as the people are willing to do that for one another, um, willing to speak the truth willing to love one another, willing to give, willing to sacrifice. And of course, this is not a guy who just comes in like blasting people with hard truths. This is a guy who sold his, sold his land and gave it to poor people in the <laughs> church. Like this is a guy who's like sacrificial in every way, taken alongside people like Saul when everybody else is like, no way we're letting him in this group, you know, and, right. and saying, no, the Lord really has worked in him and sitting down with Saul and hearing his story and then defending him before the group and saying this really is one of the Lord's people. Um, so learning to love people like that and encourage people like that is a really, I think, a critical part of uh, developing uh, a healthy group. Yeah. Well, and, and two thoughts I had as you were talking about Barnabas and the importance of being encouragers. One, uh, you see that Barnabas is just carrying on apparently a legacy that was in Jerusalem. It's the church right. of Jerusalem who heard about this and they send Barnabas. So actually the whole church was an encouragement. Like right. the, the church of Jerusalem was encouraging the church at Antioch, which is a cool notion that they were giving up somebody who, I mean, I, I can't imagine a church being happy to see Barnabas leave. Right. That's not the kind of guy you want to leave your place. He's awesome. He's just great. But they said, hey, these brethren need that, so we're going to do that. And that's a cool thing for if a whole church has uh, the legacy and the, not even the legacy, but the, the culture and the attitude of, we want to help others. That's our. That's kind of what we're all about. We want to encourage and build up other people. And also, like you kind of alluded to this, um, but two things about Barnabas individually I think are helpful. One, I like what it says in 23. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them. It doesn't say he showed up and he started exhorting them, but he first observed the good things that he saw that the Lord was doing. I don't know how long that took. Maybe maybe that was meant he showed up one Sunday and just everybody was, you know, crying and passionate during worship and the teaching was so sincere and people were given large sums of money to aid those who were struggling there. Maybe that was it. I tend to think this was a period where he just showed up and said, let me kind of get to know these folks for a few days or a few weeks. You know, I want to see the grace of God. I want to understand these people better. Um... And that's important. If I'm going to encourage people, I need to get to know them, which is to your point of encouragement is both presenting some tough truths, but also being supportive and encouraging, not just beating people up. Well, i got to invest some time in other people to be able to understand that and see the grace of God in their life and see what I can do to try to further that. Paying attention to people, that can be hard sometimes, especially in our world. 
where we're not supposed to pay attention to anything. Right. We're supposed to be on our phones or on, you know, doing our next task for work or doing our next fun activity for ourselves or whatever. And the idea of paying attention to other people is not high on our priority list. But it, what's for Barnabas? To be an encourager, you have to put other people, you have to consider other people more important than yourself. You have to be thinking not about your own interests, but of the interests of others. And and you're right. I mean, that th- that's not something that just happens overnight. It's a it's it's something that grows in a person as I commit myself to the Lord and I see his selfless sacrifice that he's made for me and the ways in which he's loved me and helped me. I start to say, you know what? I'm going to become that kind of person for mm-hmm. others as well. This is one of the ways in which Barnabas is just becoming like uh, like Jesus. Which is verse 24, right? Because it's like, how did, I mean, because you really just like, man, how is Barnabas such a great guy? Because we really haven't been told that. We've been told some things earlier in Acts, like he sold land and people respect him and he's an encourager and here he's, you know, willing to leave his home church to go to another foreign place with foreign people and all this kind of, well, what is it? Well, he was a good man. Yeah. Like, that's it. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's what it was. That's it. He really, really believed in the gospel. So I guess if I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I don't know. I'm not that encouraging. Well, like, maybe I need to do what I can to let the gospel drill down a little deeper. And if I spend time in prayer, gratitude for what God's done for me, if I spend my time paying attention to others who are being godly in service, and I'm appreciating that, but I'm deepening my faith and all that kind of stuff, then I'm going to kind of, it's almost natural. It's, you become someone who strengthens others because you yourself are really strengthened in the spirit and in faith. I think that's right. And I mean, uh, you could probably speak to this maybe just as well or better than I could, but I mean, most of the opportunities to encourage people uh, that have come in my life just naturally come out of building relationships with people, you know, asking questions, learning about them and learning about, you know, who they are and what matters to them and how to help them. And, um, you know, when you when you love people and you invest in people, the opportunities to encourage just present themselves, you know, they just come. In other words, it's not like you sit there and you look around the room, you're like, I'm going to go encourage that person. Right. Or you decide, you know, I don't even know him, but I'm going to encourage him. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's something that comes out of really caring for others. The last thing I'll say, just, and you may want to add some things before you move on to another idea here, uh, is that Barnabas, part of his encouragement, I mean, I think there's an implication that he's encouraging Saul of Tarsus, the guy who was a former murderer of Christians, a reject, uh, at Jerusalem initially until, as you alluded to in Acts 9, Barnabas is the one who sticks up for Saul. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Barnabas saying, hey, this is a good guy. You guys should accept him. He leaves to go find this dude who nobody else, or not nobody else, some people didn't really want around. Barnabas says, hey, I want you to come work with me and help me in this work. And one way we can encourage people is by whenever we're doing things in our lives to include them. So if you have a family, include people in the things that are going on in your family life, even including like working in your family and doing not fun right. stuff, you know, but hey, can you come help me out with X, Y, Z? Whenever you're going and serving somebody in your community or in your church, hey, so-and-so, you want to come with me? I'm going to go do this. I know I think the same can be said for you. There's so many times people did that for me where I was just luggage. I wasn't helping. Right. I was just there. But that was encouraging, like that that person was willing to take me along and that that person um, assign some sort of value to me. That was encouraging and, and make, give me a sense of duty. Like I need to be doing some more. I need to step up in some ways and, and help out. Um, and even I think about when I was even younger growing up in church, 
I think the reason why a lot of the things that I do now, they grew out of people saying, hey, could you do XYZ job? When I really didn't have any right to do the job. Saul right. did, actually. But I didn't have any business doing the thing that I was being asked to do. But it was something that motivated me and made me want to live up to what people were calling on me to do. So I think it's another lesson about encouragement from Barnabas here. And he, and Barnabas doesn't just do that with Saul. He also does it with John Mark. Um, That's a great point. At the end of chapter 12, when they come back to Antioch after they've given, um, taken this gift to, uh, to the church in Jerusalem who is in need, um, Barnabas and Saul come back and they bring John Mark with them. And then they take him out with them uh, to do the work of God. So I think you're right. Um, the way that people become trustworthy to do the work of God is by entrusting them when they're not trustworthy, right. you know, and letting them and, and loving them and encouraging them. And, and to be an encourager, you have to see, you have to see someone not for who they are, but for who they could become by mm-hmm. the grace and power of God. Yep. You have to learn to, you have to learn to think about people and to, and to see people not just as they are, but be able to see who through the power and grace of God they could become. Uh, as a servant. I think that's what you see in Barnabas. I'm not sure that Barnabas, after one conversation with Saul, was just like, you know, you know, this guy Saul's such a great guy. Um, we should really bring him into Jerusalem, uh, the church in Jerusalem. Probably Barnabas had been affected by some of the terrible things that Saul had done sure. in meaningful ways. But Barnabas saw the grace of God at work in him and saw that he'd been saved. And, and because of that, Barnabas said, you know what? Bring him in. And, and he puts him to work. And, mm-hmm. and little by little, um, Saul becomes uh, perhaps even more useful than Barnabas. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's what encouragers do. They t- they're not seeking their own glory. They're seeking the glory of God. So they're not thinking about, like, how can I be great? They're thinking about how can I help others to do the work of God in an even greater way. Yeah, that's right. All right, so here's some things made in great. I think we got at least one more thing, maybe two that I'm forgetting. But... Uh... One thing that stands out of this group is they're a group of all kinds of groups, multicultural group, different backgrounds, spiritually, religiously, ethnically, socially, all that kind of stuff. We got people coming together because they proclaimed and they believed in the message of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't about a particular, hey, come be a part of our club or whatever. They were preaching Jesus as, as Lord. That's the second thing. And then the third thing we see here that's special about Antioch that we would do well to learn from is to cultivate this kind of spirit of encouragement confronting sin, exhorting people to change, being supportive, believing in people, being a friend, all that kind of stuff. That's right. What else uh, What else do we get out of Antioch, though? Well, so one, one other thing that I think we should uh, think about is um, sometimes churches, especially when church is exciting like this and people are coming to the Lord and people are, you know, now you've got this new family and it's exciting, we're growing together, um, Sometimes what can happen is the church just becomes inward focused Mm -hmm. and we're just like enjoying the family and not really thinking about how we can be useful in bringing more people into the family. What I love about the church in Antioch is they're not just a church that is thinking about how can we grow a family in Antioch, but um, through the Holy Spirit, they're also thinking about how can we be useful in sending the gospel all over. Um, and, uh, and so what happens in Acts ch- chapter 13 is um, they've got all these teachers there and they're ministering to the Lord and they're fasting. And while they're doing that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. 
And I don't know that that would have been an easy thing for the church in Antioch to hear. I mean, these are two of their most important servant leaders in the group. Um, I don't know that that would have been an easy thing, but the text says, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Um, no they, crying, no debate, no like, hey, Lord, can you change your mind? Right. Can we right. send somebody else? Because for them, it was not about growing their church. Mm-hmm. It was about growing God's church. It was about it was about building up the people in the kingdom of God and bringing more people into the kingdom of God. And so, um, and so, I think that's important. If a church is going to be healthy, you can't just be thinking about how do I, how do we grow, how do we build up this church. We need to be thinking much bigger than that. The the healthiest churches are the churches that aren't concerned about their own welfare. They're concerned about the welfare of all of God's people and and bringing more people all across the world into the kingdom of God. And that's what Antioch really becomes. It becomes this church that is sending people out to do God's work, and then they come back, and then they send them out again. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of this place, uh, this hub, uh, really, where for the gospel to keep being sent out to, to, to newer and even further places across the uh, Roman Empire. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, we've alluded to this a couple of times, but in Acts 15, the so-called Jerusalem Council, it was sparked by these false teachers coming to Antioch. But the people in Antioch weren't just like, mm, we're not letting you guys get out. They're like, are you guys telling the truth? Mm-hmm. We're sending some guys to check you on this. And they go down. Well, then the end of Acts 15 isn't just, and the Antiochians proved they were right, and they right. You know, rubbed it in the other guys' faces. It's like, great. Now we're preaching. And, and we're preaching the message that's been, that we already knew was the truth, but has been affirmed that our brethren in Jerusalem agree with as well. And the end of Acts 15 is exactly what you said. They're sending another group. The implication being even their pursuit of doctrinal purity and truth uh, was with the orientation toward we want to make sure the message we're preaching to the nations right. is accurate. Right. And we make sure that everybody's preaching the right message. And we want to send more workers out. We don't want the gospel work to be hindered at all. That's right. Uh, and all these things like our multiculturalism, our encouragement, all these things that are cool things about our church, it's not, as you said, it's not an inward thing. It's not something we're just trying to keep for ourselves. It's something we're trying to push out into the world further and further in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's what the whole thing's about. Amen. And you even see that. I mean, chapter 11, that's kind of the main point, right? Um, 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Um, Whenever you roll around to verse 26, when he had found, oh, verse 24, Barnabas shows up, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then 26, after Barnabas had found Saul... He brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. Right. That's the whole thing. So much so, I don't know what your take on this is, but there's, you know, at the end of verse 26 where it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The impression I get is not that the people in Antioch called themselves Christians. No, no, no disciples had ever done that before. They were followers of Jesus. But I think the point is, they were so influential and they were such a light and they were so impactful that even the people who didn't believe in them, they knew who they were. Mm-hmm. And they were like, who are those people? You know the ones? They believe in that guy, Nazareth, right? Yeah. I just call them Christians. I mean, they're kind of idiots, but Christians is what I call them. You know, like they, they had developed a reputation because they were so outward focused and so um, so intent on impacting the world around them. I'll just be honest. This is for me. This is a hard part. Like, I mean, all of this is hard. Growing a church like this, a healthy church, is hard. But 
this part is especially tough, and, and we both got to experience this by having faithful churches that have sent us out to do the work of God. Um, that's not easy. Like, it's not easy for the church. It's not easy for the people being sent out either. Um, but it's a necessary part of growing God's kingdom. Yeah. And I think that's that's what's important for us to think about here is this is not a closed family where we're just going to sit around and enjoy the beautiful relationship that we have with one another. This is a family that is seeking to grow, seeking to bring more and more people into the love of God, the love the love of Christ. And I think the only thing that's going to that's going to constantly keep us doing this. So it, really to, what the churches are doing here is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, leaving uh, sending people out breaking apart relationships not in the sense that they're no longer but they're no longer together leaving behind the ones they love to go and serve other people where does that come from what well, comes from jesus right? right i mean this is rooted in the gospel story uh that god so loved the world that he sent jesus away from him where this perfect harmony this perfect fellowship was um, out to go and minister to people who are in darkness. The light comes down into the darkness to minister to those in need. And I think that's really the key. If the gospel, if Jesus is at the heart of the church, then all these other things are naturally... If Jesus is at the heart of the church, then of course we're going to preach to everyone because we recognize that we were dead in our sins and had it not been for him, we would, be, we would still be lost. So of course we're going to take the gospel to all the nations. Everybody needs him. If Jesus is at the heart of the church, then of course we're going to be loving and encouraging one another and building each other up. We're not content to just see people um, baptized into Christ. We want to see them grow up in Christ and mature into Him. Um, And if Jesus is at the heart of the church, then of course we're going to be sending people out. And even though that may be painful, and even though it may be hard for the church or for the people who go, we do it because we love them and we love God and we love these people who are not yet part of the family. And we want to see them come in and join as well. And that's the whole point. I mean, we're kind of beating a dead horse with this, but it's just so important that that is the point. We're pointing people to Christ. Amen. Antioch fades when you go through the book of Acts. I mean, you just go a couple more pages. I mean, we, we've highlighted how chapters 11 and 13 and 15, they're pretty pretty central to the stories. But as far as I can remember, the only other mention is like in chapter 18, I think. Oh, at 14, they come back briefly right before mm-hmm. chapter 15. And then in uh, chapter 18, there's a mention of how Paul, after one of his preaching trips, he comes back to Antioch. There's like literally a verse. He came back to Antioch, and then the next verse is, and he's gone. Right. It's not about us. It's right. not about me. It's about the Lord. He is the power to save. He's the one who changes people's lives. And so me as an individual and we as a group of people serving Christ together need to be committed to him above right. ourselves because that he's the one who will actually bring salvation and light and transform all the good things into the world. That's right. Antioch may decrease, but the gospel keeps increasing. Yeah. And it's increasing because of the the grace of God that's manifested on the people in Antioch. The same is true for us. Like we may decrease, but the gospel will continue to increase as long as we keep Jesus at the head of the church and we keep looking to him. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. We're glad you're with us on this. You probably see some other things about Antioch that you think are pretty important or, or just maybe related lessons. We'd really love to hear about them so that we can, as we're teaching people, we can share those things. So drop us a, a note, uh, an email, a, a comment online, whatever, and uh, and share those things. 
Also, if you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm in a church that's not like this, or I'm not in a church at all, or I don't believe in the Lord Jesus at all, uh, reach out to us and let us know how we can help you. Certainly, if you're here in Brooklyn, um, we are striving for this um, with the Christians that we're with. Um, we're not where we ought to be yet, but we're trying to, and we'd love for you to come and walk with us. More importantly, if you haven't become a Christian, we'd love to help you learn what it means to become a Christian so that you could walk with Jesus, and then we could all walk together in that. Uh, so let us know if we can help you in any way with your understanding of the gospel or your affiliation with faithful Christians or whatever. But even if you're elsewhere, let us know how we can help you out so that you can serve the Lord with joy and gladness so that you can be a beacon of his truth and his love in the world. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.